0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library. Thank you for being here today. My name is Kevin Amitow. I'm the coordinator for Global Diversity Education. I wanted to thank Joe Malarkey and Troy Swanson and the library staff for helping us uh, put this event together and for hosting it. And I'd also like to thank all the faculty members, Professor Williamson, Professor Baker, Professor Roble, and uh, Professor Silva for bringing their classes. And I know all of you students, I want to thank you for being here too. And I know maybe not all of you are here because you want to be. But hopefully I can uh, talk a little bit about today with income inequality and show how this uh, issue is relevant to your lives. About a year ago, I selected this topic for several reasons. Uh, the First of which, it's hard for me to think of an issue uh, globally that uh, isn't influenced directly or indirectly by income inequality. Secondly, I think that, uh, especially at our community college of the Marine, in the Marine Valley District, this issue is very relevant to us. And I think it's one of the common themes, really, with what's going on with many of the protests around the world, not only with the Arab Spring, uh, but even domestically with uh, the Tea Party movement, with the Occupy Wall Street movement, and later this month when we see with uh, some of the protesters that will probably be downtown Chicago for the NATO summit. And uh, lastly, it's clearly been uh, an issue that's arise with the 2012 election within the United States, as well as elections throughout the world. So it's definitely a very important topic. Now, I'm very excited about this topic. A few disclaimers. I have way too much information in my PowerPoint, and uh, it might be the worst PowerPoint uh, uh, format of all time. And my students, I've been grading them all semester on PowerPoint, so here's your opportunity to teach me. Um, the reason for this is because I have a lot of hyperlinks, a lot of visuals I want to put within the PowerPoint, and uh, I think you'll see. For th- uh, another disclaimer, we are recording this uh, visually and audio with a podcast, so all the slides, even if you can't see it, I'm going to read uh, the data just so the audio podcast has been available. The best seats in the house are really up front. If any of you uh, are coming in late and like to move up, you'll be able to see these better than anybody. So, today, what we're going to talk about There's income inequality and when I say talk about it, I do want this to be engaging conversation. I have a lot of information I'm going to present, but if at any time you guys have questions uh, please raise your hand and we can turn this into a, a dialogue. So, the five things that I'd really like to talk about are trying to measure income inequality maybe trying to compare income inequality within the United States with other countries, trying to get a sense of what might be causing or influencing, or at least being associated with income inequality, what might be good or bad about income inequality, and what, if anything, we should do about it. So, How to measure income inequality. Generally what income inequality is getting at is the gap between the rich and the poor. But that's very vague. And there's a lot of different statistics that one can use to try to capture income inequality. One of the best measures that we have, and I know my students in comparative government have been looking at this, what we call a Gini coefficient. This statistic is designed to measure income inequality within a country. This statistic is going to range from 0 to 1. If you were to have a 1, that would mean one person in a country would have all of the income. If it were 0, everybody within that country would have the same income. Now clearly we don't uh, have any countries that are at 0 or at 1. But any guesses of which country has the lowest income inequality as measured with this Gini coefficient Sweden? 100% correct. Very good. Any guesses on which country has the worst? The worst income inequality. U.S. is not the worst. Any other guesses? Greece. Greece, not the worst. India. Oftentimes, here's the worst. We're looking uh, oftentimes many African countries. So in this case, it's Nam- Namibia and it's with a statistic of 70.7 for the Gini coefficient. So I don't know how well you guys can see this, I know in the back especially you probably can't see this, and I'm not going to show you all 140 countries, but just so you can see, this is starting off with the highest income inequality. The United States has the 43rd worst income inequality uh, in the world, well, Technically, the CI World Factbook only keeps track of 140 countries that they have data on with this measure. But um, as the comment earlier, Sweden does have the lowest income inequality, and it's, it's many of these uh, Western European countries that generally have the lowest income inequality. Another way you can measure this is by looking at groups within a country. So in this case, looking at the top 20% compared to the bottom 20%. So here's a measure of approximately 20 countries. And it is the ratio of the top 20% compared to the bottom 20% and here in this case Singapore has the worst so the top 20% are 9.7 times times higher than the bottom 20% you can see the United States is second at 8.5 to the bottom 20% and on the other end of the scale we see Japan, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. Oh one of the slides I missed, when we were talking about the Gini coefficient, here's a group of 27 countries that are in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and I don't know how well you can see this, but this uh, bar is starting with 1985, and it's showing where their Gini coefficient was for each country in 1985, and if the arrow goes up, which it happens to be for this group of countries, That means by 2008, income inequality had increased by this Gini coefficient from the bar to where the end of the arrow is. So for a country like the United States, here we were about 33 with a, a Gini coefficient, and then that went up to about 38 by 2008. Mexico had the worst, and Denmark had the lowest. But amongst all of these countries, income inequality was increasing. There was three countries, France, Hungary, and Belgium. Belgium, where the income inequality had little change, and then Turkey and Greece, where there was actually a decline in income inequality. But you can see they started from pretty high levels. Yet another way of measuring income inequality is by only looking at the top 1%. So now we're looking at within the United States, and we're looking over a period from 1913 to 2008, and this is the share of the income, including capital gains, held by the top 1%. So here in 1913, it starts out at about 18%, and you can see how it fluctuates over time. My question to you is, uh, you notice that there was two peaks in this time period where the top one percent captured the highest amount of income. Any connection that you can draw between those two dates, those two years? Yeah, They happen to precede, or right at the beginning of the Great Depression and the Great Recession that we had most recently, starting in 2007. And that one top one percent captured. in 1928 and 23.5% in 2007. So, when we're thinking later on, I know that I've laid this out, you know, in five different ways that we're going to be covering this. Later on, we're going to be talking about some of the problems with income inequality. But just to kind of cut to the chase, some people say, one of the problems with income inequality, when it gets so high, it can be more prone to economic crisis with your economy. Okay, yeah. Another way of looking and comparing income inequality, this time we're looking at the top tenth of 1%, and this time we're going back from 1913 to 2000, and it looks like about five, and we're comparing five countries. The United States happens to be the red bar, Japan, the blue bar with the blue dot in the middle, United Kingdom, the gray bar, and France, this looks to be orange dotted line, and in Canada with the solid blue line. So you can see, in many cases, these, the the amount of income captured by the top tenth of one percent is moving in the same direction in most of these countries. However, uh, it's definitely changed for the United States in that starting in about the late 1970s, early 80s, it's definitely increased at a much faster rate than these five very comparable countries as far as political culture and political system. One other way of capturing income inequality, and this gets brought up a lot, especially in the United States uh, with the Occupy Wall Street group, And that is the, with looking at groups, looking at the change of income from CEOs to the average worker. So this measure here is trying to capture the ratio of the average CEO, direct compensation to the average worker. And again, going back from 1965 to 2009. You can see in the early period of this time period from 1965 to late 70s, early 80s, It's roughly in that same range of anywhere from 25 to 35 to 1. But then it really takes off in the 1980s, goes up dramatically in the late 1990s, peaking at 298 to 1. And then um, the last year that they had data in 2009, uh, went back down to 185 to 1 that CEOs had as far as compensation compared to average worker. looking at that same idea of comparing CEOs to the average worker. This is trying to visualize that. Um, for those of you who are up front, you might be able to read this. This dot represents a welfare recipient, $10,800 for the average family of four. The next dot is a middle class American at 42,000, which happens to be the median income in the United States. Upper class Americans, so oftentimes when we talk about the top 10%, Well, what does that mean as far as income? That is an average of $154,000. Here's a U.S. congressman, $193,000 for majority and minority party leader. And then what they're trying to tell you here is you have to use your imagination for this dot because it's too large to to fit the screen. But the average pay for a Fortune 500 company CEO is $11,400,000. This slide here is trying to capture global population and wealth shares. So now we're looking at the entire globe in wealth. And so in this case, we have the top 5% of uh, the wealthiest, top half of 1% in the entire world. And then you can see on this side, their share of global wealth. They have over one-third of the entire global wealth. The next 7.5% if you were to put them together with that very top half percent, that adds up to 8%, and that group accounts for about 80% of the world's wealth. Something to think about here this bottom, almost 70% of the world's population, accounts for 4.2% of the entire world's wealth. And on the far right side, you can see what their net worth is under to be in this bottom 68%, and that's $10,000. So one thing that often gets brought up with income inequality is many people in the United States, for example, if you happen to be uh, have $35,000 of income, you happen to be in the global top 1%. So there's many people throughout the world that are doing uh, far worse as far as income and wealth than people in the United States. So the idea is the poor people in the United States and those that have low incomes still often do better than many people throughout the entire world. I realize now I'm I'm going a little bit slower than I expected. I'm going to have to skip some of these. But I wanted to show a couple other measures. And this is uh, capturing when income, when there's income growth, who gains? And I happen to uh, already have this up, hopefully, earlier This one I know is even harder for people in the back to see. But what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that we've had a change. I picked these dates somewhat arbitrarily. Uh, Many people say that the economy's really changed for many people in the United States and throughout the world, starting maybe in the late 1970s. So here we have a period from 1942 to 1977 the average income in the U.S. grew by about $22,000. The richest 10% got 31% of that growth. The bottom 90% shared about 70%. So one can summarize that as saying, you know, we had a lot of economic growth, but it was largely shared by many people in the United States. Just to contrast that, we were. To change that to the parameters from 1978 to 2007, you can see how this changes. So in this case, average incomes in the U.S. grew by $16,000, but how that was distributed was very different. The richest 10% got 92% of that growth. The bottom 90% shared 8% of that growth. So one of the things we're going to be trying to talk about is what might account for this? What's going on within the United States that might change how this income growth is changing in its distribution? I apologize here for these transitions. another way of looking at how that income growth has changed is looking at five groups. The top 20%, uh, the bottom 20%, the second fifth, the middle fifth, and then the upper middle fifth. So if you're looking at all income earners in the United States, grouping them by quintiles, and if you look from 1979 to 2007, the bottom fifth, during this time period, only captured less than half a percent of all the income growth. The bottom 90% together captured just over a third of the income growth. Looking at the top 10%, they captured 63% of all income growth. And really, many people who talk about income inequality, it's really, really the top 1%, and and even within that top 1%, perhaps the top 10th of 1%, that's really, really done well for themselves. So in this case, the top 1% captured 38.7% of all income growth in the United States from 79 to 2007. So now, you've seen a lot of these statistics to try to capture income inequality, how it's changed, how it compares to other countries. So what do you think? What might be accounting for this? There was a political scientist, Timothy Obama, who writes for Slate, and he tried to capture a myriad of different factors that might be accounting for this change. What do you think he came up with with some of the major factors that might account for rise of income inequality? I'll give you a minute to think about that. Come up with a few guesses, and then we'll explore some of those. Increases in technology. Increases in technology. He does essentially capture both of those. Any other guesses?
1: Job sourcing in other countries?
0: Job sourcing, so outsourcing in other countries, maybe globalization to tie in with that. The number one factor that he came up with, and we're gonna get at a couple of those factors that were brought up, was actually education. This is why I think this is an appropriate venue to have this discussion. All of you must be enrolled at Marine to be here in this room today. Education is a big factor. Uh, we were talking about maybe how the economy's changed in the last two or three decades, and the real winners of the last three decades have been those with college educations. The first data I just wanted to show was unemployment rate. Clearly having a job uh, is connected with income, and you can see how within the United States from 1979 to 2010, the unemployment rate really varies by group. This bottom group, the, uh, this uh, green, teal, I'm sorry, it might be partially colored blind. Uh This is college or more, and you can see at all times they have the lowest uh, unemployment rate. And at the very top here we have less than high school. And you can see at all times, they have the highest unemployment rate. The next group is high school graduates and then some college. So everybody in here must have some college. So you would be at least in this group. So you see that having some college or a college degree clearly matters in having a job. Not only does it matter in having a job, it matters in your income. To get at a couple of different uh, connections that we have to uh, education. And the data I have here is from an article from the New York Times uh, Class Matters, Why Won't We Admit It? Uh, from this, uh, about a year ago, December of 2011. Data from the National Assessment of Education Progress show that more than 40% of the variation in average reading scores and 46% of the variation in average math scores across states is associated with variation in child poverty rates. This is true throughout the world. It's not specific to the United States. International research tells the same story results from the 2009 reading scores conducted by the Program for International Student Assessment show that among 15-year-olds in the United States in the 13 countries whose students outperform ours, students with lower economic and social status had far lowest test scores than their more advantaged counterparts within the country. This is an article from about five years ago, and I understand there's, this is a long, long quote, but I think it tells a lot. And uh, this is looking at the top 10% of all institutions, uh, academic institutions in the United States. Despite their image as meritocratic beacons of opportunity, the selected colleges serve less as vehicles of upward mobility than as transmitters of privilege from generation to generation. Just how skewed the system is toward their already advantage is illustrated by the findings of a recent study of 146 selected colleges and universities, which concluded that students from the top 25% of the socioeconomic hierarchy, and this is based on parents' income, education, and occupation, are 25 more times likely to attend a top tier College than students from the bottom four. Any reactions, thoughts on that? That might matter. Relevance to your lives. I've been talking a lot. You guys have any, anything, any questions, comments so far? Basically, that means that anybody that doesn't, doesn't have rich parents looks like they good. Yeah, the idea, Michael, is what we've shown with these last two slides, and I did skip one statistic that was showing the correlation between your parents' education and your own education. It's about 50%. So what these slides are trying to demonstrate, some of this data, is that you do control your destiny, your educational destiny, to a degree. But your parents, something that you can't control, also shape approximately 50% of your academic achievement as far as how far you're going to go, maybe even which colleges that you go into. And again, when we're getting at inequality, keep in mind, at least as far as I know, being able to control which family you're born into is something that I don't think you can control. So this is something that many people, when we're getting at how to address income inequality, argue is very relevant. All right, one of the comments earlier was talking about how globalization and perhaps how technology may have changed. So I'd like to play this brief video clip. Um, i noticed a couple people with their iPhones today and I want you to see this as one example of how the, the economies really changed and how this might relate to income inequality.
1: Apple's iPhone. Sophisticated design. Homegrown. Well, not exactly. The idea starts here, and the new iPhone's processor is made of Texas. With a battery, its display, and most of its other parts are made somewhere else. The iPhone has hundreds of different components, an estimated 90% of which are manufactured with help from workers in Germany, Singapore, Korea, Taiwan, China, and elsewhere. Outsourcing to China is a story you've heard before, right? You know, China has millions of unskilled workers willing to work for less than Americans. That's not new. But let's take a look at what happens when manufacturing is sent over Take semiconductors, those tiny, essential components of any electronic device. Manufacturing semiconductors happens in three stages.
2: Design, wafer fabrication, and assembly. In the 1960s,
1: U.S. companies started sending low-skill assets of assembly to Asia. Skilled wafer fabrication followed in the 1980s. And within the last decade, some complex design work has moved overseas as well. The point is that innovation requires relationships between design teams and factory workers. When low skilled jobs go overseas, it creates a vacuum that increasingly pulls higher-wage jobs abroad as well. And losing manufacturing jobs has other consequences, too. As American manufacturing has declined, our economy has lost what's known as a job multiplier. Let's look at some estimates from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. If America were to create 1,000 auto manufacturing jobs, suddenly, auto plants would start ordering more parts from other companies and hiring new managers. Those 1,000 new auto jobs would create other manufacturing jobs new management jobs, transportation and warehouse jobs, scientific and technical service jobs, as well as various other work. All told, you would add 5,712 total jobs to the economy as a result. Now, consider what happens if you add 1,000 new hospital jobs. More nurses, for instance, means you create other healthcare jobs, like nurse assistants and lab techs. You create other scientific and technical service jobs, And various other positions, but only for a total of about 1,700 jobs. This effect shows up in the American economy right now, where Apple is a huge player. Earlier this year, the value of Apple in the stock market made it worth more than the biggest companies in oil, energy, and manufacturing. But Apple only has 43,000 American employees a fraction of the nearly 400,000 workers that a company in General Motors employed a half century ago. Actually, if you look back at the largest employers in 1960, you had companies like GM and Ford and General Electric, big manufacturers. If you look at the biggest employers now, though, you have Walmart and Target and Kelly Services for temps. Big service firms. In other words, the fastest job growth in the American economy today falls into two groups. There are companies like Apple and other firms that hire highly skilled workers like software engineers and designers and pay them very high salaries. For a few elite workers, things are pretty good right now. And at the other end of the spectrum, the number of service jobs like waiters and medical assistants has also risen significantly. But wages for these jobs, on average, have been stagnant in the last decade. And the jobs in the middle The work for everyone else, like salespeople and office assistants, steel workers and manufacturers, those jobs have increasingly disappeared. They've been replaced by robots or advances in technology, or they've been sent overseas. That's why our economic problems are so hard to solve right now. We've become a nation with fewer chances for people to climb into.
0: Links and sources I'm going to be using today I have on Blackboard if you're interested at the end. Uh, just let me know and I can point you in the right direction. But um, any comments, questions so far? Just to tie into that video for a moment, there's a famous political scientist Francis Fukuyama. He wrote this article in uh, Foreign Affairs. A few months ago, early, in the early phases of industrialization, the ages of textiles, coal, steel, internal combustion engine, the benefits of technological change almost always slowed down in significant ways to the rest of society in terms of employment. Inequality has always existed as a result of natural differences in talent and character. But today's technological world vastly magnifies those differences. This slide here is trying to capture another way how globalized our economy is now. This is looking at from 1980 to 2008. What it's trying to measure is uh, economic integration. So the very uh, blue solid bar here is trying to capture uh, Trade integration, and you can see it was relatively static there for many years, and then starting in the 90s, uh, you had a lot of trade agreements, NAFTA uh, being one of them, and more free trade, uh, less regulation, uh, trying to cut back on tariffs, quotas, things that would restrict trade. Also, financial openness increased exponentially <laughs> starting in the 90s and 2000s, and then you can see the amount of money spent on research and development also increased. And then one more idea from Francis Gupiyama from the same article. The other factor undermining middle class incomes in developed countries is globalization. With the lowering of transportation and communication costs and the entry into the global workforce of hundreds of millions of new workers in developing countries, the kind of work done by the old middle class in the developed world can now be performed much cheaply elsewhere. And a couple of these are hyperlinks uh, on this PowerPoint, but I know in my classes we talked about this before, you know, GM and this is uh, from a, an article that I have uh, sourced right here, uh, is showing that the average GM worker in the U.S. is $56 an hour including benefits versus Mexico at $7 China $4.50 and India $1.00 David brought up a comment earlier about outsourcing, and you can see many uh, CEOs and businesses are making these decisions to outsource. Clearly, there's huge uh, cost savings as far as labor. Other people have argued that the decline of labor, and uh, you can, s- I'll, I'll show you here in a minute, in the United States, the percentage <coughs> of jobs that are unionized. Another disclaimer, the presenter today is a a union member, but uh, you can see in the United States that union membership from the late 1940s was over 30%, about 33% of all workers were unionized. And uh, the most recent year that we have data, 2008, it's around 10%. And I think by now it's a little bit under, I think it's around 8%. You know, you can debate amongst yourselves whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, some people have claimed you know benefits and, and pay have decreased because of that. And uh, the second link I wanted to show you tries to draw a connection here between various countries and how unionized they are in their level of inequality. So we're not trying to prove causation here, just trying to show that there is a relationship. And you can see in the um, vertical axis here, inequality, Uh, Is getting higher on this end, and then this is union coverage. What they're trying to demonstrate is that the countries that are most unionized actually have the lowest income inequality. Countries that uh, have the least union coverage have some of the higher measures of income inequality. This is another uh, source that's probably open to interpretation. You can draw your own conclusions here. But many people have argued that we have increased in the United States and globally. uh, The production has increased significantly. And generally, productivity of workers and the average incomes or their pay have kind of moved together. As we become more productive, our pay increases. And then that kind of magical time period, the late 1970s, early 80s, that really took off in different directions. Productivity shot up, uh, but average pay uh, did not. Again, you might be thinking to yourself of, of what that might be. Some people claim, you know, CEOs' decisions of outsourcing, of, you know, increasing technology. Um, that they've made successful decisions, so maybe that explains why CEOs are getting much more pay, um, whereas workers um, are, are not receiving the, the same increases of pay. A huge factor, and one that I, I would like to spend a lot more time talking about, I'll just try to keep it somewhat limited, is the role of government uh, decisions or sometimes the lack thereof of government decisions. There's a recent book called Winner-Take-All Politics, a couple of political scientists. I'll briefly introduce them to you um, in, a, in an interview here. And they are put to a question by Bill Moyers about what explains the dramatic increase of inequality in the United States. And he basically says, you've got one sentence to tell me what happened, why it happened in the United States, and here's their response. See American politics. Says, um, far more than we would have believed
3: when we started this research, what government has done and not done, and the politics that produced it is really a part of the rise of an economy that has showered huge riches uh, on the very, very, very well-off. It's the politics, stupid. Exactly. How do
0: they do it?
2: through organized combat is the short answer. Why did they do it? Because they could. Because the transformation
3: of political organization, the creation of a powerful organized business community, the degree to which that was self-reinforcing within both parties has meant that politicians have found that they can, on issue after issue, cater to the interests of the very well-off while either ignoring or only symbolically addressing many of the concerns uh, they are felt by most Americans and get re-elected and survive
2: politically. If, if you uh, listen to many um, public officials over the over the last 20 or 30 years, as they've started to recognize an inequality of the typically what they'll say is, this is a result just of economic change. It's a result of globalization, uh, changes in technology that have advantaged the educated, uh, at those with high skills at the expense of the uneducated. And there clearly, there is some truth to this story that education matters more in determining economic rewards. But the more we looked at this, the less satisfied we were with that explanation. That it it couldn't explain why the economic gains were so concentrated within a very small subset of the educated people in American society. 29% of Americans now have college degrees but a much, much smaller percentage of Americans will benefiting from this, this economic transformation. And as you speak, and I can hear all of those free marketers out there say, come on, uh, Pierce, come
4: on, Hacker, uh, it is the global economy. It's that cheap labor overseas. It's those high te- technology skills that you say are required. These deep forces that actually are beyond our control and are making
3: inevitable this division between the top everyone else. Right? That's what they're saying is they listen to me right no. now. We think that the story that's told about how the global economy has shifted clearly matters, but that it doesn't get to this really powerful role that government played in adapting to this new environment and in changing the well-being of, of people
2: uh, in the middle and, and at the top. And again, we wouldn't want to say that the kinds of changes that they're talking about don't matter at all but they still leave open for a country to decide how they're going to respond to those kinds of economic challenges. It's
0: a really interesting interview. Um, We are limited in time, so I'm not going to play the rest of that. Um, But I did want to show just a couple other elements that are related to government, uh, what they could or uh, haven't done in regards to decisions. Let me ask this question. Tax rates in the United States, uh, another presidential election topic uh, in the US. Anybody know what the very highest tax rate is for the highest income earners in the United States? 25, it's a little bit higher, 35%. 35% for the highest income earners, approximately $360,000 of income would be necessary to be taxed at that highest rate. Um, what about the history of U.S. taxes? I have a, a little point here that's going back to two, or 1916. Any guesses of what the highest marginal tax rate for highest income earners was in the history of U.S.? Even higher than 60, 90 percent. Uh, little over 90 percent at various the Truman era, and even 91 uh, percent during the Eisenhower. Era. And I, I think this visual is going to come through a, a little bit, uh, maybe too large for viewing. We'll see how this works. But you can see, I think in this case, they're going to show corporate tax rates. They're going to show uh, capital gains. And they're going to show income and show it across administrations um, from the early 1900s to the present. So this uh, top line here uh, is income, and you can see during the Truman administration, what you can't see, this is 90%, this line right here. So during the Truman administration, it was over 90. During the Eisenhower administration for about a decade, it was 90%. Dipped dramatically in the 70s, even more dramatically in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. And then... uh, you can see that also corporate taxes have changed uh, quite significantly in capital gains taxes. Uh, I mentioned this for a couple reasons. Some people, particularly liberals, would argue that one way of trying to reduce income inequality would be higher tax rates. You noticed earlier that the top 1%, how much income they captured in the United States in a given year, changed, right? It went from a high of 23.9% in 1928, but it definitely dipped during the post-World War II era. Liberals would claim, well, that's partly because it's being taxed, right? So some people would argue that's one solution that you could have to try to reduce income inequality. And it's also clear that there's a clear divide between Democrats and Republicans about what to do um, in the United States with taxes. It seems like the discussion is about going back to the 1990 tax rates under Bill Clinton in the Republican Congress where it was Uh, 39.5% for the um, top income earners. That's what um, one proposal is for anybody with, in this case, over a million dollars a year, uh, they would be taxed at that uh, 39%. What's interesting is looking at tax rates in other countries. I don't have a lot of data on that now, but in the French election, the the candidate who, the first round of voting, got the most votes, Hollande, uh, he's proposed and uh, 75% tax rate for the highest income earners has been quoted as saying anybody making 100 million euros a year would be impossible to make anything more than that because it would be taxed so high. So in other countries that share similar political values uh, have much higher tax rates. I'm gonna skip over a lot of this. you know, the the video, the interview I was showing with the two political scientists who wrote The Winter Pig, Take Politics, they have this idea that the whole ecosystem of American politics has changed starting in the late 1970s where money matters a lot more. Uh, I could show you um, some data, I'll just take my word for it, that the amount of money in our political system, and it's not a Republican thing or a Democratic thing, it's both parties uh, are... are getting a lot of campaign contributions, and Wall Street is playing a huge role in lobbying, and it's not a Democratic or Republican thing, if you actually look. Uh, Historically, they've uh, been bigger donors to Democrats than Republicans, but the idea here is that money matters a whole lot more, and lobbying matters a whole lot more in recent politics. One uh, slide I will show you is a comparison, now we're looking at income in several countries before, I notice this is really small, but this is income. Taxes and transfers reduce child poverty rates in several countries by 50% on average. So what it's doing, it's looking at about 20 countries and it's showing the percentage of child poverty before and after taxes and then the transfer of taxes. Some people would call those welfare programs, right? Redistributing wealth. So what's interesting to see is that here we have the United States at the bottom. So the blue line is after, the red line is before. The United States had 26%, uh, just over 26% of their children living in poverty uh, before any tax and redistribution in about 5% less than that after. What's interesting to me is if you look at several of these countries like New Zealand and even the United Kingdom, Canada, they don't have that dissimilar poverty rates amongst children before the tax and redistribution policies, but they really do after, right? So this is the idea that uh, the two political scientists earlier, uh, Cather and Pearson, are trying to get at, is that what government does can't matter. Uh, Now, how receptive American populace is to... You know, more taxes and more redistribution uh, I don't think is probably going to get anywhere in the United States. But what they're trying to show here is that in some countries there's been a dramatic, you know, France is really stark here at 27% before and 7% after. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is getting at the accuracy, are we comparing apples to apples, that you know maybe the population in many of these countries, and it's not a maybe, but the population in most of these countries is significantly smaller than the United States, and not only that, the demographics within the country. The urbanization and uh, different, uh, you know, the United States is a little bit more diverse, and uh, the histories might be different. So is it really fair to be comparing a country like the United States with countries with uh, you know, the United States has 310 million people. Denmark has, uh, and Finland and some of these countries have just over, you know, 15 million or so. Maybe these comparisons aren't accurate. Again, yeah, I think that's a, a, a legitimate claim and a discussion that we can have. Uh, maybe we can have it here in a little bit more and see what the rest of you guys think. Just a couple of other things I want to get to, and, and kind of along that same track, that my students know uh, by now that. I tend, to, I tend to be a little bit more of a pessimist on some things and try to really show you the, the worst case scenarios. But there's many people who would find, first of all, that, and I didn't wanna get into this level of specifics with you, but you could pick different data that doesn't show quite as bleak picture. So what I'm gonna talk about now is maybe why income inequality isn't as bad as some people say, um, or in some cases that there's actually benefits to it. And the first, you know, that i want to refer to is just you could show a little bit different measures and and it might not be quite a start. The other thing is is obviously we're going to have some inequality. Uh, As you've probably picked up by now, I'm certainly not the most gifted public speaker. There's public speakers who deserve to get paid a lot more than me. There's professors who are a lot better at their job than me. Certainly we shouldn't be paid the same thing. You know, I play basketball, but I'm not like Derek Rose, where I command his type of income. So we're going to have differences, and we know that some people work harder. You guys know this. I mean, you probably have friends who, same high school, they could have gone to college and you know, stayed in college, but they didn't. You're, you know, decisions that you make, your motivation matters. Uh, so it's false to think that somehow we should have somehow income, in, complete income equality. In the other thing is, you know, life isn't so bad, especially amongst what we can consider uh, some of the lower income people today have still a better quality of life than they did hundred years ago. Modern technology and satellite television, you know, uh, internet and iPods and, you know, cell phones and all of the different medical advances that we have. So it's really not as bad and stark as some people think give another way of looking at this, we tend to make more money as you get older. And if you look at the United States demographics, we are becoming uh, an aging society. The baby boomers are starting to retire now, but we have a lot more uh, older people who have had time to, you know, have higher skills and education and work experience. So it's probably not surprising that we have more people um, doing better uh, than in the past, and if I were to click on this hyperlink over here, it's a Pew Research poll showing that, or Pew Research data, showing that there is a huge difference in people, their uh, personal wealth based based on age. So that could be another explanation. One of the uh, more provocative arguments that have been put out recently, a book by uh Charles Murray, and he looks at, in his book called Coming Apart, just white Americans. And he shows over time that much of the inequality, he he thinks it's a huge problem. He actually thinks we're going to have two Americas in the future. That America, as we know it, won't be the same. But he claims that the inequality is due largely internally to cultural uh, attributes. That in general, we're having kids before we're married. Uh, We're not going to college. Um, Some of our childbearing uh, techniques um, are not very good. Uh, Joblessness, divorce, a whole host of cultural uh, attributes that are kind of internally done. He goes on to say that on the flip side of that, some of our most educated, but think about how you meet your significant other. Sometimes it's in college or in your first job, and oftentimes what he's trying to say is that some of the people who have already been successful are meeting another successful person, having children and they're kind of passing on, in part biologically, but other because of their uh, child, uh, their parenting practices and other things, that they're passing on these traits and setting their kids up. You know, we were talking about childhood poverty and how that can relate to education. Now do the flip side of that? few parents who do really well for themselves, they live in a great school district, their kids have you know, uh, opportunities for tutoring and we summer programs and have the luxury of doing internships because their parents have money that help them out, you get the picture, right? So there's that part of this as well. And then another idea is that, well, okay, we have inequality, but what do we want? Do we really want to tax the really wealthy and take away their incentive to work harder, to increase their skills, to create jobs, government, if they get involved, they could be really inefficient and in some ways detrimental and have negative uh, consequences because of that. So the idea is that in part it's natural, we're going to have some of it, and government isn't the best entity to be tackling it. So I'm about five minutes behind where I was hoping to be. Uh, But now the pessimistic side Oh, and then Herman Cain, you know, getting at this idea, remember Herman Cain, one of the presidential candidates on the Republican side, saying, you know, sometimes this is internally done too, that you can't always be blaming somebody else, that you need to look in the mirror essentially yourself and see what decisions that you've made to account for your life status. So now the negative side. And I was thinking of starting with this quote to try to demonstrate the real significance of income inequality But uh, I don't really want to distort the picture of income inequality. I didn't want to start that way. But the idea, there's a quote from George Packer in *The broken contract in Foreign Affairs piece last year, inequality is the ill that underlies all others, like an odorless gas that pervades every corner of the U.S. and saps the strength of the country's democracy. The idea of income inequality can lead to political inequality and I think many Americans regardless of their political affiliation do have some concern about that. The famous quote from a, a former Supreme Court Justice, uh, Louise Brandeis, we can make a choice, we can have a democracy, or we can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. Again, a lot of links and data I could show you, I'll be selected here, um, I think I've asked my class this before, but any guess of what percentage of Americans contribute $200 or more to political campaigns? Just throwing out a number, any guesses? 2%? 2%, it's pretty close, it's less. I actually think as far as giving a political or ca- a contribution of some kind, it's very close to 2%. So if you include those who are less than uh, $200, but those who give $200 or more—I know this is really small here. I apologize for that. But it's uh, a 16.16 percent. So 16th of a percent of people give $200 or more to uh, financial contributions to, to candidates. And this goes back to the idea of, of Hacker, uh, Jameson, and that it's a very the, the political systems change. Money really matters but it's really a a, a small group of people who are contributing. Uh, Getting at the the same idea, this is a a psychologist actually who's been dabbling into politics recently with his recent book, How the Rich Get to Share the Marbles there's a problem with the ultra-rich, it's not that they have too much wealth. It's that they bought laws and made it easier for them to gain and keep so much more wealth in recent decades. Now, keep in mind, some of these may sound real negative, but we all have interests. We all ask government to do things for our interests. Now, the the, the wealthy or business uh, leaders, they're not any different. They have interests. Uh, Some might find they even have more at stake in certain circumstances, so they're going to use the resources that they have to try to influence political decisions. This isn't anything new. James Madison talked about it in Federalist Number 10. We were always going to have people who tried to use government to further their own interests. Uh, This is a quote uh, back in the 1930s from uh, FDR. For too many of us, political equality we once had was meaningless in the face of economic inequality. So just once again to kind of tie in this connection between income inequality and political inequality. Now, some people would say, look, income inequality doesn't really matter. If we have economic growth, it's going to rise all boats. The idea of rising income to lift all boats. But, uh, hopefully you recall this from earlier, the Spain status, I'll show you now. We looked at that, right? 1942 to 1977, that was true. When we had increased economic growth that ninety percent of it almost was, I'm sorry, a vast majority, I think it was like 70%, was going to 90% of Americans. However, after that, 1978 and 2007, we see a very different picture that uh, all but the 90% of Americans only got 8% of the economic growth. And I think this uh, visual here really captures this. So this is just looking at a single year but it's the most recent year we have data on, 2010. Of the economic increases, 7% went to the bottom 99%. 37 went to the top 100th of 1%, and the rest of that, uh, 56%, went to the remaining top 1%. So again, this is some of the concerns that a rising tide lifts all boats, but it doesn't seem to be realistic uh, the current situation. Another way of saying, well, you know, income <laughs> quality is not that bad as long as we have economic or social mobility. This kind of uh, ratio algiers and kind of rags to riches and everybody knows one of these, right? Somebody who came from modest means we can uh, have social mobility. What I found amazing when I first came across this statistic was that very similar to your height, there's a correlation between your father's height and your own height. That's a correlation of 50%. And this was found by Sir Francis Galton um, a long time ago. We see now that your own economic position has that same correlation. So just like it's possible that if you had a father who was five foot six, you could be six foot one or taller. That's possible, but it's rare. In the same circumstance, I'll show you here some more statistics to demonstrate this. It's also very rare for you to uh, be born to somebody in the bottom 10% and to then end up in the top 10% of the income readers yourself. So this is where, again, the concern with income inequality is primarily that it can reduce social mobility. So this graph here is very similar to what we looked at earlier, but in this case, the uh, bottom line is income inequality using the Gini coefficient, looking at several different countries, trying to see if there's a relationship between intergenerational earnings. So that is what you would make compared to what your parents make. And that statistic uh, eventually that we looked at earlier that's showing about 50% of your uh, income is determinant on your parents, we see that the United States has... The very strongest uh, connection here between income inequality and connection to your parents' income. Other countries like Denmark, Norway, Finland. What they're trying to say there is: some people maybe have heard this quote before. That if you want to live the American dream, you need to move to Denmark. At least recently, that's the idea. That at least in other countries, they're seeing statistically that there's a increased likelihood that you can exceed uh, your parents' income that you were born into. Another one relevant to us here in a college environment. So This is looking at incomes matter more than test scores for college completion. So this is college completion rate by income status based on 8th grade test scores. You can quibble about whether that's a reliable statistic to use or a reliable measure. But the idea here, we have low-income, middle-income, and high-income groups. And then the orange bar here is people who performed high on that 8th grade test. And uh, the blue bar is they receive the middle score. The red is for the low scores. And on this end here, we have the percentage that completed college. What's interesting here... Amongst low-income people who performed high on that test, they actually had a lower college completion rate than somebody who is in high income, but had a low score, just very slightly, but significantly different than people who had a middle score. I think the United States is accurately described as a merit-based society. We all believe that you try hard, work hard, do well, that you can succeed, in this case we're seeing that college completion rates are very much connected more on income than they are under eighth grade class scores. Again, some people might find that concerning. Like we talked about this earlier, the connections between high income inequality and economic crisis. Uh, here we have, and this is not exactly my area of expertise, there's a couple of articles, in this case at the book, The Spirit Level Why Greater Equality Makes Societies Greater. A whole host of social problems connected with income inequality. Uh, poor health, heart disease, suicide, weight gains, and cancers. Social ills such as mental illness, violent crime, narcotics use, teenage birth rates. So here's an example that's trying to show the connection of income inequality. This is actually trying to map out the poorly. sorry about that. So we've looked at this map earlier, actually this is the source I got it from, where the top 20% to the bottom 20%, And you can see the trend here. We remember that the United States had the second highest income inequality. Now we're looking at infant mortality rate and very similar the United States has in this case the highest rate. So what they're doing in this graph is trying to show that there's a connection between infant mortality in more unequal countries. And you can see the correlation here. As you have more income inequality, the infant mortality rate is higher the life expectancy is lower. And here they used a measure that combined several different categories life expectancy, math proficiency and literacy, infant mortality, homicide, imprisonment, teenage births, trust, obesity, mental, earth, or mental illness, including drug and alcohol addiction, and social mobility, and tried to map it with income inequality. Again, we have a pretty dramatic connection here as income inequality increases uh, the higher scores on the index of health and social problems. One of the things I came across a long time ago that I was really excited to try to connect, bring relevancy, so I try to connect it to the college environment. And here we have maybe something that doesn't fit in at all, but I want you guys to be the judges. This was a 60 minute clip from, I think it was around the Super Bowl, so back in February. With uh, and the first guy they're going to be talking about, it, I think he's the union representative of the NFL players. And then they're going to be interviewing the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell. I'd like to see if you guys can draw any connection with what they're talking about here with the NFL and income inequality.
4: There are only two institutions in this country degree. with the power to create almost limitless amounts of money. One is the federal.
0: Whether they be owners, club executives, players. but uh, And how do they like it? They don't like it, but they also understand my responsibilities. I don't expect to try to get people to like everything I do. I want them to
4: respond. week extended this contract. Well, Players Association signed an unprecedented collective bargaining agreement that will bring a decade of labor peace and prosperity for both sides.
1: Now,
0: sometimes you have to fight hands a little bit in order to
1: uh, make sure that things work out. But in the end, you were happy. Look, uh, if I wasn't happy, I wouldn't have signed
3: it. Why do you think the league's been
1: so successful? You know who's going to win this game? Neither do I. And you know why? It's fantastic.
4: And it got a lot more fantastic last month when Goodell and the league signed a record-shattering nine-year deal with the television networks, including CBS, in which the owners of the players will split nearly $6 billion a year in revenue, following a season in which virtually all of the top-rated TV shows were NFL games. Goodell managed to wring more money out of the deal than most people thought possible. I hear you're a tough hussar. I hear that
0: you can be cold, confrontational if necessary. I think you have to be in this job from time to time. I take my responsibilities very seriously, and I want to make the league better. And to do that, you can't make everybody happy.
4: At age 52, he has spent his entire career working at the NFL, starting out as an intern who once drove NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle and this is the only job he ever wanted. Like most fans his age, his love of the game is shaped by its history and his early memories.
3: He
0: broke a fan, hand, regardless of the consequences. I probably thought that to us by example.
4: From there, a quarter of the league's... Re- Revenues, about $2.5 billion still come from ticket sales, Woo! with another $2.5 billion coming from licensing keys on everything from footballs and league apparel to shot glasses and ice scrapers. Bud Light is reportedly spending a billion dollars over six years to be the official beer of the NFL. But the real key to the league's success is its unorthodox business model. Under league rules, the teams are required to share most of their revenue with each other, which is always a sticking point with some of the most successful franchises and the more politically conservative owners. I mean, that's uh, socialism, isn't it? It is a
0: form of socialism, and it's worked quite well for us. So we try to combine socialism and capitalism. How can we socialize by sharing our revenue in a way that will allow every team the ability to compete? It's not just socialism.
4: The NFL is essentially a cartel, albeit a legal one, thanks to a limited exemption from antitrust laws granted by Congress more than 50 years ago. you have got 32 competing teams, but they share 80% of the revenues. You operate a draft for new players. Your salary caps. You depend on public tax money to help fund
0: your uh, stadium. Well, we look at it as trying to create a, the most competitive league we can. One of the things we want every fan to feel in the country is hope when the season starts, that their team can end up holding that Super Bowl trophy. And one of the stats we're most proud of, in the last nine years, we've had at least one team go from last
4: to first. The result is a financially engineered equality that allows a small-town team in Green Bay, Wisconsin, to compete with a metropolis like New York. It produces lots of close games and those unscripted dramas that are essential to the NFL's appeal. We're start every Monday morning in the League's New York Command Center, Commissioner Goodell
0: and top officials can I apologize for the Packers portion of that clip, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you guys what what do you think? i truck what connection might one draw between that NFL interview and the topic of income quality that we've been discussing. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, the, the, the comment was about the, maybe some of the benefits of socialism. Many people don't understand how the NFL works with the revenue sharing. But here's really the, the connection that I'm trying to draw you know, that, when they were shown that NFL uh, union draft, when he looks down from the press box, he's like, you know who's going to win today? I don't either. Isn't that what's great? Isn't that why we all love the NFL? And then when they were showing the NFL commissioner later on, say, you know, look, we don't know who's going to make it to the Super Bowl. And that competition, the unscripted endings, really, really makes a difference in how popular the league we are. And that's very different than college and a lot of other sports, right? The connection I'm trying to say here is that you know, we, we want, everybody wants that hope and that dream to succeed, to be able to be in a put in a position where they, too, can compete with other people. You know, I, I know I play Monday Night Basketball, and there's, there's a few guys on our team who, a group of guys who played who are a little bit better than others. And Sometimes it works out where the teams are a little bit unfair. And maybe it's just me, but there's times where I'm not as motivated to play. I don't know we're not going to win. Right? I don't want to take my group of guys and go play against the Chicago Bulls. This idea that everybody wants the opportunity to succeed but has the tools and resources and was put in an environment oftentimes that we can't control that disproportionately put them at a disadvantage due to poverty or being born in a single parent household or you know all kinds of maybe a bad neighborhood, you, do the, uh, you can connect the dots. But this quote here I think really sums it up from the Huffington Post. Prosperity depends on innovation. We waste innovative potential if we do not provide a level playing field for all. We don't know where the next Microsoft, Google, or Facebook will come from. The person who will make this happen goes to a failing school and cannot get into a university. The chances will become a reality that are that much more diminished. So that's the, the connection that I took. And I remember watching that video the first time and really thinking about it that maybe as societies, if we really gave resources or at least opportunities for every single person to succeed, we don't know how great our country or our world could be. And that we could be wasting really talented people by not putting in them or allowing them to be in those uh, beneficial opportunities. I can't believe I've talked for almost an hour and 15 minutes. We didn't have much time for discussion. Any questions or comments that you'd like to make, Can I end with one public opinion? Uh, One one piece of data. And this is getting at what Americans want. I think this is interesting. I know that there's a couple faculty members who have used this in the classroom uh, before, so maybe you've seen this. So a Harvard business professor and a behavioral economist recently asked more than 5,000 Americans how they thought wealth is distributed in the United States. Most thought it's more balanced than it actually is. Asked to choose their ideal distribution of wealth, 92% picked one that was more equitable. So you can hopefully see the scale here. The, the, the lightest yellow is top 20%. Orange is the second 20%. Red is the third 20%. Uh, fourth is a light blue and bottom 20%. Is regard to So the top part here is the actual distribution of wealth. We've seen this several times in presentations today. Here's what Americans think it is, and here's what they'd like it to be. So first of all, it doesn't seem like we're really aware of the level of income inequality in the United States. And then lastly, even though we have very strong opinions against the idea of socialism, I think that's pretty true, a lot of people believe in this idea that we shouldn't overly tax anybody. We want the opportunity for successful people to make their money. But it's just interesting to see this of what their ideal society would look like. Anyway, I'm sorry. I've used up all of our time. If you have any questions, comments, I'd be happy to talk to you after so I really appreciate all of you being here. Thank you so Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more
2: information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.